Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast Podcast, hosted at PodFeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 6, 2019, and this is show number 752. Well, hey, next week, Steve and I and all the kids, the four of them, we're going to all go to Disneyland, take Forbes to Disneyland for his first time with Pat Dangler, because she is a fanatic about Disneyland. That means I won't be here around my house Friday, Saturday, and a little bit of Sunday. So if anybody had a recording they wanted to make for the show, that would be really nifty. Look at a, look around at the apps that you use, something maybe nobody else has uh, ever talked about on the show, something unique that really uh, blows your dress up, maybe a gadget you've used that you think is pretty, pretty cool. Maybe you could do a little recording for us. And as always, we love it if there's also some written text to go along with that. Well, this week, Bart finishes up our exploration of Bootstrap 4 in Programming by Stealth. He takes a look at one of its most versatile components, the so-called card. He claims that it was really hard for him to figure out how to describe what it does, but it seemed like a really intuitive example, uh, really intuitive class to me, and I thought I understood it. We'll wait till I try to do my homework to find out. I've been having a blast in Programming by Stealth lately because I do understand it so well, so it's really been fun. Anyway, you can find this episode of Programming by Stealth either in your Chit Chat Across the Pond full feed or in the Programming by Stealth feed or over at podfeed.com. Look for episode number 610 of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Hello, castaways. Terry Austin here with a review of a really cool app. Actually, we're revisiting an app that Allison originally discovered and reviewed way back in the summer of 2016. Let's start with our problem to be solved, and it's way more common than many of you are willing to admit, TV volume. This may well be an issue in your own home right now with one person turning the volume way too high up and someone else feeling blasted out. I'm actually a bit of a special case, and most days I solve this problem differently than I'm going to suggest here. I wear hearing aids to help with all aspects of my own hearing world. I've actually got a piece of proprietary hardware that I plug into my Apple TV to take care of this for me. So, for me, the solution is a $7,000 pair of hearing aids, plus a $300 custom box that passes TV audio directly to my ears. This lets me adjust TV volume to whatever I need without affecting anyone else at home. I've often had visitors comment on how cool that ability would be. Usually the next words out of their mouth are, but I don't want to have to wear hearing aids to get it. Well, now you too can have this ability with the app Tunity on the iOS or Android App Store. You can also read more about the app and their services at www.tunity.com. That's T-U-N-I-T-Y. Tunity only works for live stream TV, so broadcast, cable, satellite, those all should work just fine for you. Streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and the soon-to-come Apple TV, not so much. Just install Tunity on your iPhone or Android phone if you are so inclined and create your free account. Then give the app permission to use your camera and your GPS. The app needs camera access to be able to scan your TV screen and visually recognize what you're watching. GPS access is required to locate you and decide what TV providers are in your immediate area. Once you start the app, it's going to open a camera screen and show a rectangle for you to line up the TV screen. I've been most successful if I stand and walk toward the TV to fill that scan area with my own TV picture. Once you do that, 
you activate by tapping the tap to scan button. The first thing you're going to see is uploading as the image you just took is uploaded to the Tunity service. You'll then see detecting as the Tunity servers try to decide what you're watching. At this point, your TV stream should be identified and your TV audio should begin playing your headphones immediately. As an added bonus, this is an independent audio stream using your phone's data. So, if you have, by way of example, started watching the morning news and decided to head out on your morning walk around the neighborhood, your TV audio is not traveling with you. How cool is that? One huge feature update has come along since Allison's 2016 review. You may notice a slight misalignment between the audio in your headphones and what's happening on the TV. That's not a problem in this most recent version. At the bottom of the app screen, you'll see a fine-tuned audio sync graph. It's got a scale that lets you adjust forward or backward, presumably by about three seconds either way. The scale seems to indicate you can jump in either direction, there are five increment marks between each full second, so you should be able to adjust either forward or backward by fractions of a second. So, here's the problem solved. Whether you're at home with someone who likes the TV at a radically different volume than yourself, at a hotel, at a friend's house, at a sports bar, or any place else that you'd like absolute and personal control over the volume of the TV without disturbing others in any way, Check out Tunity for your smartphones. Oh, and by the way, stay subscribed. Well, of course, they're going to stay subscribed, Derry. Well, thanks again for uh, taking a look at the Tunity app for uh, probably from a little different perspective than the way I looked at it. I just use Tunity for when I'm at, say, at the airport and there's a TV far away that's got some news report that I really want to see. I can point my phone at it. I got to run up to it to get it to uh, to look at the video and make sure it can see what's going on. And then I can go sit back in my seat and I can listen to uh, a TV somewhere else. I actually used it in a sports bar once. Well, not a sports bar, a regular bar, but the TV had a, a game on that I wanted to see. And I was able to listen to the game sitting in a seat when uh, nobody else was listening to the game. So uh, different uses for Tunity. And it's a very, very cool app. Appreciate you doing the review, Terry. One of my pet peeves in app development right now is how many services only work on mobile. I know I'm an old lady here, but I really like to type and interact with the world via a big girl keyboard on a real computer. Don't get me wrong, you couldn't pry my phone out of my cold, dead hands, but if I can type for real, I'm going to do it. A shining example of this annoyance is Instagram. I want to be a good Instagrammer, but being restricted to using only my iPhone is irritating as all get out. The worst part is that Instagram actually works via the web interface at Instagram.com, but there's no plus button, so you can only look at other people's content. You can't add your own. Last year, I did a blog post entitled How to Use Instagram from a Real Computer that gave you a little trick to fix this problem. If you enable the developer mode in, in Safari or use the already available developer mode in Firefox, you can change what's called the user agent switcher to iPhone, thereby tricking sites like Instagram into thinking you're on a mobile device and allowing you to go to Instagram.com and get the plus button. Even with this trick, though, you don't get access to Instagram stories. Plus, it's kind of an annoying hack, and I don't like to have to do that just to play with the cool kids. And also, Instagram is not the only site that gives me problems like this. 
You may remember back in November of 2009, on episode number 233, when this gentleman named Bart Bouchatz told us about Fluid, an app that would allow you to create site-specific browser instances. Well, there's a new kid in town called Flotato. It's like potato except Flotato. It's fun to say. Anyway, Flotato is from Flotato.com, and it creates site-specific browsers, but it creates the iOS version of those web apps. With the iOS versions on your Mac, you can run many of the applications not made for the Mac. Flotato is free for two apps, and if you want or need more, a full license is the grand sum of $19. This works out pretty well, because if you're really only irritated by Instagram and not having that darn plus button or the Instagram stories, you can get a completely functional version for your Mac through Flotato for free. But if you find that you really like having a lot of web services in their own little apps, you can shell out a few bucks and really go bananas with all the options. When you launch Flotato, you'll see a grid of pretty app icons in their names, each with a Get button below it. The apps chosen for Flotato don't by any means encompass all of the mobile apps in the world, but it does seem to have a lot of the usual suspects that you might want. All right, here's how Flotato works. We'll use Instagram for the explanation. Ready? This can be super complicated. Click on the Get button under Instagram, and in about 0.2 seconds, the Get button turns to Open. Click it. In about 0.15 seconds, Instagram opens up in a window on your Mac. Log into Instagram, and you're ready to play. Now, Instagram acts like any other app on your Mac. You can even see it in your Applications folder with its normal icon, just like on the phone. You can put the icon in the dock. You can launch uh, Instagram now via Spotlight or Launchpad. Instagram has the plus button at the bottom and Instagram stories at the top, and it functions exactly like Instagram on iOS. And you created it virtually instantly with Flotato. Isn't that crazy? Now, there's only one way you can tell the difference between this app and a real app. At the top left of your screen, when you launch Instagram, it doesn't say Instagram, it says Flotato. But when you quit the app, it doesn't quit all of the Flotatoes, only the one Flotato app you're currently using. If you use Facebook, even against your will, how annoying is it that on the desktop, Facebook Messenger is this irritating little tiny sub-window on the page in Safari? Turns out Flotato's got a Facebook Messenger app, so you can interact with Messenger without firing up Facebook and getting sucked into non-productivity. Remember when we had a Twitter client on the Mac? I never used it because I'm a Tweetbot fan, but a lot of people were irritated when it disappeared. With Flotato, you can have what feels exactly like the Twitter app back on your Mac. Now, some apps show up in Flotato but are marked as not Flotato. Well, that seems pretty weird, but I think I understand why they're doing this. Slack, Discord, and the other apps marked as not Flotato are actually already web apps, so Flotato doesn't need to recreate them. I don't know why they didn't just skip including them, though. If you have a web app that you enjoy and it's not available in Flotato natively, you can even make your own Flotato app. Let's say you're super excited about the new button on podfeed.com that takes you directly to security bits. It turns out that button just takes you to the URL podfeed.com slash blog slash category slash security dash bits. You could make an app that is dedicated to reading your favorite security updates blog. In the Flotato interface, the first app, and I put app in quotes, in that interface says, make your own. If you select the start button under it, 
you get a couple of easy-to-answer questions. The first is the web address, and I just told you what that was. Then you make up a name for this new application you're creating. Finally, you choose whether you want your web app to be the desktop or mobile version. As you enter this information, there's a little window that will show you what it would look like when it's really running. This can be especially helpful if you want to flip back and forth between the desktop and mobile options. I think the ability to roll your own is how you'll end up wanting to pay the developer for such a useful app. You could even make uh, use it to make a web app called Amazon that in reality went to podfeed.com slash Amazon. With a homemade Flotato instance, you can create a square slice of the screen and keep it active in your dock. Now, that sounds kind of nutty, but in some instances it could be handy. We have a weather station, so I created a Flotato app that shows the weather at our house. Then I made a slice of just the temperature, and now I can see the temperature outside right there in my dock. The way you create these little slices is very odd. With your new web app open in the menu bar under app, you choose dock monitor active. Well, I guess that kind of makes sense. It's going to be an active monitoring app that's in the dock. So dock monitor active. Anyway, then on the web app, you're invited to drag your monitoring area. What they mean is they want you to drag across a square area on that web page. Once you do that, the dock icon for that app will show the area you chose to monitor real time. It's pretty cool. I ended it, undid it, though, uh, to follow the steps again, and I couldn't get it to work a second time. Might be operator trouble, but uh, anyway, it's it's kind of a, I don't know, maybe not the most useful feature of this app, because Flotato does all these other cool things. Flotato is a really cool service that solves some real problems for me. It's wicked fast to create apps. I finally have a functional Instagram app. I can use Facebook Messenger when I must as a floating app, and I can create my own web apps. These apps are just little WebKit windows, so they are super responsive and fast. If you want to try it out for free, go for it. And if you get great value out of Flotato, it's only $19 at Flotato.com. After figuring out everything Flotato could do in order to write up this review, I bought Flotato myself. Hi, this is Sandy Foster again with a little tip. I'm sure I'm not the only person who's forgotten to start a workout on the Apple Watch or the iPhone. It's important to be able to add it afterwards, of course, and some time ago I shared a tip for doing just that. In iOS 13, the process has changed. I think it's not nearly as straightforward as before, but no one asked my opinion, so here goes the updated method. Please don't ask me how I happen to need this information. To add a forgotten workout, open the Health app on your iPhone. At the bottom of the screen, tap the Browse tab and then the Activity box. Now scroll down and tap Workouts. At the top of the new screen, tap Add Data. Now you can input your type of activity and the starting and stopping times. Just be careful, as the scroll boxes for those times can be a little finicky and decide to change all on their own. Now tap the Add button and you're done. Uh, how do I know that the scroll boxes can be a bit finicky? Mm, don't ask. But just in case you run into that problem and accidentally save a wrong time or date, there's a way to fix that too. In the Health app, tap the Summary tab at the bottom of the page. Now tap Workouts and scroll way down on the resulting page until you see Show All Data. 
This takes you to the All Recorded Data page where you can simply swipe left to delete the wrong workout before going through the above steps to recreate it from scratch. Unfortunately, it's not possible to edit the incorrect information, so it must be deleted and redone. Now about that 26-hour Tai Chi session I accidentally added... (laughs) That's good, Sandy. I love it. 26 hours. Well, I did want to tell everybody that um, Sandy did screenshots using the uh, beta of Clarify, 64-bit beta that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Anyway, um, she did screenshots with little arrows and numbers and everything. So those are all in the show notes. Her review was nice and crisp and short, but uh, she's got the screenshots that you actually need to be able to go through and remember exactly how she did that. Thank you so much for sending that in. I've been lucky so far that uh, the Apple Watch has said, hey, hey, dummy, you forgot to start your workout. It's funny. If you talk to Apple Watch people, they know that if you didn't don't get credit, it's as though you didn't do it at all. You can't eat that cheeseburger if you didn't burn those 1,200 calories you needed to, to deserve it. Well, do you listen to all of the fine shows from the Podfeet Podcast Empire and find yourself wondering, how can I help support such Herculean efforts? Do you wish you had a way to monetarily help pay for microphones and cameras and computers and phones and applications that the host either uses to create the shows or reviews on the podcast? I bet that burning question has been bothering you for a long time. The good news is there is such a way, and it's easy and relatively painless. If you go to podfeet.com slash Patreon, you can become a patron of the Podfeet podcast. It's like being a patron of the arts. You can support podcasters like me to help keep the show ad-free and keep the quality up. To become a patron, just click the red button over at podfeet.com slash Patreon and figure out a dollar amount per show that reflects your undying gratitude for the work we do here. Now, don't you feel better? I purposely entitled this next article, Sleep Tracking is Stupid, for two reasons. One, it's fun to rile people up with a clickbait title, but more importantly than than that, within some specific parameters, I believe that statement to be true. I really do believe sleep tracking is stupid. As you poise your fingers over your keyboard to send me hate mail explaining why I'm stupid, let me get some time, take some time here to explain why I say this. And I want to start by setting one very major parameter. If you've gone to the hospital and done an overnight sleep study where they stick electrodes all over you to monitor your brain waves, breathing, and movement, that's not stupid at all. Those tests are designed to diagnose serious problems like sleep apnea, and they are no joke. What I'm complaining about today is how everyone wants devices like the Apple Watch to track their sleep. Here's why I think it's dumb. Tracking your sleep on little graphs on your phone is not going to help you sleep better. Because these graphs only tell you something you already know, and it does nothing to reveal the root cause of your sleep problems. Let me give an analogy to help explain what I mean. Let's imagine for a moment that you want to lose weight. Before you step on a scale, you already know that you are heavier than you desire. You may have been deluding yourself about how bad things actually are, but your pants are tight, you've lengthened your seatbelt, and it's been getting harder to reach down to tie your shoes. If you want to lose weight... You can weigh yourself every single day for a month, and you're not likely to lose any weight at all. That's because the scale is only telling you the results of other behaviors. It has nothing to do with the root cause. I proved this by doing a very scientific experiment. Years ago, I tried weighing myself twice a day, and I still didn't lose weight. Sleep tracking is just like weighing yourself. 
it will not help you to sleep better. It very likely will be valuable in measuring progress towards a better night's sleep, just like a scale can show progress in weight loss, but the problem is that there's no root cause measurement to go along with it. To lose weight, we have two tools. Like a checkbook can measure how much we spend and how much we earn and allow us to balance the tool, the, the two, we can measure our intake of calories and our output of energy. Awesome apps like Lose It, My Fitness Pal allow us to enter the foods we eat to measure our caloric intake. They make it easier than ever to be as accurate as possible. The great thing about these apps is that even if you lie to yourself about your portion sizes, recording your intake every day will be relative over time as you improve your own behavior. On the flip side, we have devices like the Apple Watch, which will measure our caloric burn. Now, you can argue about whether these values are precisely accurate, but again, the importance is the relative change. If your watch measures an increase in caloric burn because of the exercise you've begun or extended, then you know you're moving in the right direction. As with the checkbook, you balance the two until you're burning more than you're consuming, and then the results are measured with the scale or a tape measure if that's what's important to you. The critical pieces to the equation are the caloric intake and the caloric burn. The scale, or tape measure, is only the verification of your success. So let's get back to sleep tracking. I can recharge my watch in the evening so I can wear it at night and track my sleep. If I do that, it's just like weighing myself. I see people say all the time, because of sleep tracking, I know I should go to bed earlier. Really? That concept totally escaped your understanding until a little device told you about it? Well, unlike losing or gaining weight, we don't have empirical equations that tell us how to sleep more. Maybe for me, having a glass of red wine before bed helps me sleep, but it causes disruption in your sleep. I like to read before bed because sleep, reading makes me sleepy, whether it's blue light or not. You, on the other hand, may be highly affected by having your brain stimulated with a book. Maybe you can drink coffee all evening long, but I can only drink caffeine in the morning or I'm jittery all night and I could never sleep after coffee. Now, I've made all of these arguments I'm making you here. I've made those to many people in real life. Not one person who likes sleep tracking ever said that they thought I was right. They all argue with me and they leave the discussion thinking that I'm just short-sighted. I've been wrong before, so while I do leave the option open, I don't think I'm wrong on this one. One of the arguments I hear when I ask someone who tracks their sleep, in spite of my clearly articulated arguments about how it's stupid, they often answer, well, I do it because it's so interesting. And I think that's the crux of it. The term quantified self is common today, and it means our absolute delight and fascination with anything that tells us about ourselves. I can prove we all feel this way. When you blow your nose, do you often look at the tissue afterwards? I bet you do, even if you'd never admit it publicly. There are other examples of this that, you know what, we're just going to skip over those for this sake, the sake of decency. Because of our fascination with ourselves, sleep tracking is interesting. I've tracked my sleep and the results were fascinating. Just as fascinating as I think my own dreams will be to other people. Because everything about me is fascinating. If you'd like to track your sleep, you know what? Go for it and enjoy it. Revel in the intricacies of seeing that you, you got up at 3.48 a.m. to go potty and pretend you would have never realized that if the app hadn't told you. When you feel exhausted in the morning from a restless night's sleep, be sure to check your app to be sure that your feelings of exhaustion are warranted. But until we have tools and evidence to explain what causes each one of us to be robbed of a peaceful night's sleep, 
Sleep tracking is stupid. Oh, but wait, look. David Smith has an app called Sleep Plus Plus. I've got to buy that. You know, I really expected to get a lot of negative responses to the uh, article I just uh, talked to you about after I posted it on the blog. But so far, I was really surprised that I've gotten general agreement. Even people who love sleep tracking and love the quantified self admit that they can't really figure out how to do anything about it just because they're tracking. Now, my favorite response came from Eric. He wrote this comment on the blog post. Allison, as a sleep tech, I applaud your analysis. People who have symptoms of restless leg or sleep apnea should get checked out in a lab. Other sleep tracking is fun, but doesn't really change outcomes. As long as you don't drink Mountain Dew before you go to bed, seen it. Eat hot wings in bed, seen it. Or get wasted before you go to bed, saw it Thursday night. Besides giving yourself enough time to sleep, very few people do, there is very little we can do to affect our sleep. That said, some doctors and insurance companies will be moving patients to sleep testing using Apple Watch over the next few years because it will save time and money. In-lab studies and even the home tests are clunky and patients often struggle to adjust to the change in their environment that the study adds. We affect the test by testing. The Apple Watch will be a perfect solution once Apple adds the needed accoutrement for testing restless leg, blood O2, and breathing patterns. It is inevitable like self-driving cars. Well, I really thank you for this uh, for this response, Eric, because, uh, you know, Eric knows what he's talking about. He's not some, just some dork with a microphone like me spouting opinions. Secondly, I want to emphasize that I don't believe sleep tracking will be stupid forever. As the tools evolve and the professional studies continue, we'll get a better grasp of what causes us to lose sleep and be able to track both the root causes and the results. Now, I kidded around at the end of the article about David Smith having an app called Sleep Plus Plus. I did download and install it. It's free, but he invites you to give him the two bucks because he's awesome, so I paid the two bucks. I tracked two nights sleep, and remember, since we find ourselves fascinating, I am convinced that my results will be fascinating to you. I'm not going to tell you about my dreams. You're just lucky that way. Anyway, I'm going to tell you because I think the results are pretty funny in the context of my sleep tracking is stupid. All right, here's the setup. On Friday, I got a shingles vaccine. This vaccine is known to have some pretty nasty side effects, but shingles is a hideous illness and a few days of discomfort is totally worth getting vaccinated. It's a two-dose vaccine, and other than feeling like I'd been punched in the arm by Mike Tyson the first time, I had no other side effects. But this time, on Friday night when I went to bed, I was convulsed with violent shivering. It was horrible. I couldn't get to sleep and I was miserable most of the night. I got up at 3.30 a.m. and I took my temperature and it was 102. I took some aspirin and I finally went into a fitful sleep. I woke in the morning with no fever, but I was clearly sleep deprived. I even took a mid-morning nap later that day to try to recover some of what I'd lost. So that's my Friday night story. Saturday night, I went to bed feeling great. I had a fabulous night's sleep. I went to bed a little later than usual, so it was only seven hours, but I woke up feeling fantastic. Now, here's the funny part. According to Sleep Plus Plus, as recorded by my Apple Watch, I had six hours and 52 minutes of restful sleep on the night I had 102 degree fever and violent chills. And on the second night, I had six hours and 25 minutes, as in 27 minutes less sleep on the night that I felt great. In other words, I'm standing by my statement. 
Sleep tracking is stupid. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchotts. How are you doing today? I feel like I just talked to you recently, Bart. Yeah, it feels like it was only five minutes ago, but it was seven. <laughs> we are doing our first ever back-to-back recording of Security Bits and Chit Chat Across the Pond. So, uh, But I'm I'm still amped up. Allison, you say first ever. This, is, this used to be what we did every week. Did we really? We did until we both realized that it, we used to do it the other way around, security bits first and then programming by stealth. And we would have cranky Allison about 10 minutes into programming by stealth because, <laughs> well, nah, my you brain know. was full, right? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, basically for various reasons of busy weekend fun stuff, we've, we've decided to, you know, go for it and do back. Actually, we, we can completely blame Klaus Wolf. It's we, Klaus's fault. Yes. Let's do that. <laughs> He said to thank you. We are rearranging our schedule so that I can hang out with Klaus in uh, in Santa Monica this weekend. So Klaus from Germany is here with his wife and children, and I'm looking forward to it. Well, how can you not go hang out with Klaus? I mean, I had such a great time with both Tom Merritt and with Dorothy. So you should, of course you should hang out with Klaus. It's got to happen. All right. So uh, Bart said earlier today, he said, oh, Security Bits is going to be easy. I'm just going to say do a million updates and don't worry about that jail or that jailbreak. We're good. That is right? the TLDR version. But there is there, there is some more meat for us to pick out. A little if nuance. Like there is a little more nuance. Yes. Uh, a whole bunch of follow up, uh, just little updates to things we talked about before. So we we talked in detail about Bluetooth uh, permissions on iOS, where it's now going to apps are going to pop up and say, "I need your permission to have Bluetooth." Um, the Verge have done a lovely article explaining all of the most common reasons an app would legitimately want Bluetooth permissions. So oh. stuff like you know connected medical devices, headphones, a lot of the stuff we talked about, but lots of other use cases I hadn't thought of either. So it's just a nice article that just lays it all out. So I just thought, well done, The Verge, and that is so worth linking to. So ta-da, have a link. Now, I do want to uh, point out, uh, I said on the show, and I got corrections by a couple of different people, that um, something like... Uh, or Overcast would ask for my headphones or ask for Bluetooth because that's for headphones. And they pointed out that Overcast doesn't have to do that. It's using the standard Bluetooth API. It's only things that are not for standard headphone sort of usage that they're actually asking for it. Yeah, sorry, it's not the standard Bluetooth API that Audio Hijack is using. I should have thought about it. It's using the standard audio API, so it's the same as you choosing a different audio source. Yeah, and not Audio Hijack, uh, uh, Overcast. Not yet. That's yes. Oh God, our corrections have gone <laughs> off the you... rails. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, the, yeah, so yeah, this so sounds good. I'd like to look at this. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really nice written article, and the Verge do some really good stuff. So I just thought that was worth linking to. Uh, another follow up then is Cloudflare's Warp VPN has finally been released. Details over on blog.cloudflare.com, and also some good articles on naked security and iMore. These, this is causing confusion because people think that a vpn does one specific thing because the average because home users tend to use vpns for one possible use case for vpns and that's causing some confusion here so a vpn can hide your source ip address and a vpn can encrypt your traffic but a vpn 
doesn't have to do both of those things. It could do neither or both or one or the other. Warp VPN does not hide your source IP address. What it does is encrypt hmm. your traffic. So this is not a mechanism for watching American telly from the UK. Okay. This is you will you will still appear to be coming from your home IP address, but your tra- or you know whatever IP address you're on, right? If you're in Starbucks or whatever, but your traffic will be safely wrapped in a layer of encryption by Warp VPN. So okay. there's a free version, which is just called Warp VPN. And then there's a Warp VPN Plus or a Warp Plus VPN. I don't remember where the plus goes, but that plus version, which is paid. And the plus version is faster because it uses Cloudflare's massive global content delivery network to route you through the internet. Hmm. So instead of your traffic traveling through the internet as normal, your traffic basically enters Cloudflare's network at the nearest point to you, crosses the world via Cloudflare's network, and exits Cloudflare's network at the nearest point to your destination. So you basically Finally, get the information superhighway. <laughs> precisely. Only it turns out that there's a private, you know, a turnpike that is way better than the public road. It's the fast track. Yeah, it's so a little like a turnpike. Uh, have they? Have they written a uh, a set of applications that work on you know Macs and PCs and Android and iPhone and do it all automatically like we get with something like Encrypt.me? Well, there's a, basically it's all done through their one dot one dot one dot one app. So the features you turn on within their existing app, I, I to be honest, I haven't really played with that much because I'm not really interested in using it. But it's a free VPN from a trustworthy source. That has yeah. a good privacy policy, so that's worth mentioning to our listeners. Right. You have followed the money. Precisely. And actually, their they're, 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 um, readmes and stuff are very good. They're very clear about this. We know what's going on. The Siri grading, i.e. human review kerfuffle, has a, a, a teeny tiny extra development. Apple have started hiring for the new in-house reviewers. So job adverts went up, if you'd like to listen to Siri calls of people who have opted in. <laughs> Uh, the continuing rollout of DNS over HTTPS, or DOH, is, is getting some more news. Um, US ISPs are very worried that Google is putting DOH into Chrome. So worried they're writing a letter, they have written, in fact, a letter to the, Comer- no, sorry, the House Judiciary Committee of the US Congress asking them to please investigate. Now, the letter is badly written, and the letter... It makes two points, but it mushes them together into an unintelligible mess. Basically, one of their concerns is, what if Google is gathering all this information? Well, the answer is they're not, and they're extremely clear about that fact. And secondly, but now ISPs can't spy on people to make extra money. And I'm like, yep. (laughs) Do they say that? They don't, I'm paraphrasing, but that is, they obviously use euphemisms, but their actual argument is this is a monetary stream for us being able to get people's DNS queries and that'll be cut off. So they're cutting off a stream of income. Uh, And my answer to that is, and this is why we need DNS over HTTPS. Wow. Yeah. They're they're basically going, wow, wow, wow. We used to be able to spy on people and now we can't. So yeah, I don't care. Good on you. Or bad on you. I don't care. Uh, And then just a a not-so-positive follow-up. We talked a few weeks ago about a presentation at, uh, I think it was Black Hat Security Conference, where a guy 
homemade DIY job made a malicious lightning cable that would hack a Mac uh, that looked indistinguishable from a true Apple cable because he managed to make the components so small he could hide them inside the cable. So he bought a genuine Apple cable and made it into a malicious cable. And he was able to do that in such a way that you couldn't really tell. But that oh, I was remember a, that one. Yeah, and that was a DIY job. He basically did it to prove it could be done. And it was a one-off. Well, he decided to see, well, I wonder if this is manufacturable. Turns out it is manufacturable. And he's gone into business manufacturing these malicious cables. Now, in theory, these are being marketed to um, security penetration testers, pen testers. So to be a member of a so-called red team. But he hasn't put any sort of purchasing controls. So really, anyone can buy these cables for any reason, be they malicious or not. So I would say all of us need to be aware that we shouldn't just accept random cables from strangers. Now, did I understand correctly? I heard on another podcast that this is a lightning cable that you would plug one end into a computer, one end into your phone, and the um, there's a, a Wi-Fi hotspot in the cable, which is what he has built, and that it allows him to, or a hacker, to then get into the computer, not into yes. the phone. Is that Correct. right? That is, that is all correct. I'm not sure you actually need a phone plugged into the other end. I think just plugging the cable into the Mac is sufficient. Okay. So if you get a dodgy cable, but you plug it into a wall wart to charge, then it hasn't gotten, it hasn't got anything to, to communicate with. That is also correct. Yes. And this okay. is where there's a wonderful thing I should, I, I, I must, oh, I could, I could, I'll dig up the link and I will give it to you to pop in as a palate cleanser of a sort. Um, you can buy, there's all sorts of names for them, but the Data Blockers is the more PC name. They're basically a, a male-to-female US, USB dongly thing, which physically disconnects the data cable. The data, yeah. I and the ones I those. bought are actually transparent, so you can see that the data pins are not connected. So you can actually visually prove to yourself that this oh. is genuinely a data blocker, which is a lovely touch. The other name for these things is a USB condom, which doesn't sound nearly as pleasant. But basically, if you use one of these, because all you want to do is charge your phone, then you're safe because the data blocker will stop the malicious cable from being malicious. So uh, I now own a bunch of these. They're tiny, no, so I now have them in my bag. I, I thought it was over Wi-Fi. Oh, but it's, it would have to be getting the data from the cable that was plugged into the Mac. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, okay. so the Wi-Fi, the Wi-Fi is for the exfiltration. The Wi-Fi is for the cable to the attacker, and the USB is for the cable to the victim. Ah, but I've got USB-C, so it won't work. I'm sure someone I have has made... <laughs> Well, actually, yeah, you could you could put this through, you could you could dongle the cable through the protector and then through another dongle because at the there end of the go. day, the only thing that matters is that the power the power lines up and that will that will line up. Right, right. Anyway, these data power, these are data blockers are cool, and like I said, the ones I bought on Amazon recently, which you can use Allison's affiliate link. Yeah, um, the transparent plastic casing, so you can physically verify with your own eyes that the cables are cut, is wonderful. It's just such a neat little touch, and they were dirt cheap which is why I bought a handful of them, literally. I just have them in all my bags now, just everywhere. Nice. Okay, uh, To be it. fair, this guy did say he was going to go into production. He, he oh, yeah. did yeah. say that. So he didn't, I mean, he's been... 
Not great. what we would have wanted him to do, but he's been awfully open and honest about it. Yeah, and this is great because there are legitimate reasons for security researchers to have these kinds of tools. Right. It would just be nice to put some attempt at some safeguards in place. You know. Anyway, you know, it's not it's not the end of the world. We just have to realize that accepting random things from strangers is dangerous. Right. So we have a security medium, just the one, but it's a biggie. It's made all the news. Checkmate, spelled with a digit eight on the end. This is the fancy pants name because you have to give all of your bugs a fancy pants name for an iOS bug that is quote unquote unpatchable. Now, the guy who discovered this is a veteran of the jailbreaking community and he's released details on a bug and a matching exploit that he has found in a low-level bootloader used by iOS devices with system-on-a-chip, or SOCs, from the A5 up to and including the A11. So that means that the following iOS devices have this bug, this vulnerability. iPhones from the iPhone 4S up to and including the iPhone 10 iPads generation 2 to 7, iPad mini generations 1 to 4, iPad Pro generation 1 and 2, and iPod Touch generations 5 to 7. Hmm. Now, the good news in terms of modern devices, that means not affected are the iPhone 10s, 10R, and iPhones 11, as we seem to have decided to pluralize those. Mm-hmm. Uh, iPad Air generation 3, so the rebooted Air because they stopped using that name for a very long time. Uh, iPad Mini Generation 5 and the iPad Pro Generation 3. So most devices actually sold at the moment are not affected, with the exception of the iPod Touch, which is still at version 7. So this sounds really bad. Should we lose our minds about it? uh, We'll tail the audit and say there's a fire extinguisher on the end, but let's make our way towards the fire extinguisher. So a bootloader is a very low-level component. Its job is the first link in the chain. So you have some physical silicon, which accepts ones and zeros, and then we have these really advanced OSs with multi-touch and all these kind of cool things. How do you get from, you know, the first few electrons running into a chip to that massively complex OS running? Well, the step one of that massive process is the bootloader. And its job is to get the device into a state where it is capable of reading its own firmware. The firmware will then help it read from the flash memory. And then once it's able to do that, then it can actually start to load the OS and start to boot itself up. So the very first step in that chain is a bootloader. And that means that this isn't even firmware. This is more primitive than firmware. This is literally part of the chip. There is no upgrading this. This is baked into the chip. Hmm. Now, iOS is an OS that is designed to have a secure chain all the way from the very, very start of the boot process all the way to the end. It's cryptographically secured to detect if an OS has been tampered with in any way. So you can be cryptographically assured that the OS your your phone boots or your device boots is digitally signed by Apple. That is one of the things the bootloader 
does is it makes sure that the OS that gets booted has been properly digitally signed. So that means if you want, basically, if you can find a bug in the bootloader, you can trick the iOS device into booting an OS that is not digitally signed by Apple. Oh, okay, okay. And we have a name for doing that. Call that jailbreaking. (laughs) Is that the only definition of jailbreaking? In the context of iOS, jailbreaking means booting an OS that isn't Apple's. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, so basically a, t- a tweaked OS, a tinkered OS that has features disabled or extra features added or in some way is not the one Apple shipped. So that's that's what we mean by jailbreaking in the iOS context. Okay. So we have found jailbreaks before, but they've generally been further down the process. So you find a bug. So it's a, it's a bootstrap process, right? So each step builds on the previous step. And so if you find a bug in any step, you have you have a bug for all the steps that follow. So a lot of the previous bugs were found in later steps in the process, but they're much easier for Apple to patch, right? If the if the problem is in the OS itself, well, that's easy to patch. That's a software update. If the problem is in the firmware, that's still patchable. That's a firmware update. We get those for devices from time to time. What makes this different is it's in the bootloader. We Uh, cannot patch this. hmm. Now, this is where we begin our silver linings. So this is the low point of the conversation. This is (laughs) okay. Silver lining the first. This is so low level, it is only exploitable while the phone is connected to a computer via USB. It has to be tethered to the computer. You need physical access to trigger this book. Second silver lining, and it's a darn big one, the exploit is not persistent. Each time the device boots, it has to be connected to the computer to be tricked again into not checking the digital signature. So if you use this to install a non-Apple OS, if you do this to someone maliciously, right, you, let's say that you're, from Dajbekistan or Evilistan or something, right? <laughs> Some country that's evil. And you, at your airport, you say, uh, step over here, please, sir. Just wait here while we search your baggage. And then you go and jailbreak their phone and install malware on it. If that person then reboots their phone, it will refuse to boot and go into DFU mode because it now has no bootable operating system because it checks the digital signature, the digital signature fails, and the phone just puts up that little iTunes icon and says, Help. Yep. So the only way, every time you boot your phone using this exploit, you need to be connected to the computer that's running the exploit code. So you need to be physically tethered to the attacking computer. So this is great for security researchers and for people who are into jailbreaking. It is not usable to permanently hack someone's phone, which is good. Very good. Okay. What about, you know, the FBI? Getting into somebody's phone. Aha, good. So that is the third silver lining. This is is a bug in the bootloader, and only in the bootloader. This is not a bug in the secure enclave, which means everything protected by the secure enclave, including all of your biometrics and all of your cryptographic keys, continue to be protected by the secure enclave. So if you don't know the password or PIN to the phone or you don't have the appropriate fingerprint or face, 
you do not get in because the secure enclave will not give up its secrets because this is not a bug in the secure enclave. This is a bug in the bootloader. Oh, wow. So, cannot break into locked devices. So it's not nearly as exciting as it sounded. Correct. And by exciting, you mean scary. Because I was scared <laughs> until I started reading. I was very scared until I started reading. And then I started going, phew. Oh, phew again. Oh, triple phew. <laughs> so these silver linings are good, better, phew. <laughs> so the final thing to note is what the security researcher released was an exploit of this bug. The security researcher did not release a jailbreak. Now, this just happens to be exactly the kind of bug the jailbreaking community are always looking for. So everyone expected someone to take this bug and turn it into a jailbreak, as in an app you could download, install on your computer, and then, you know, connect the phone over USB and actually run the jailbreak. And it didn't take long. There is now at least one jailbreak in existence. And to be honest, but it, you know, there was one in existence yesterday when I last checked. For all I know, there's five of them in existence today. Right. This is this is how it's going to go. I was listening to Lori Gill talk about this on MacBreak Weekly, and I loved her reaction to it. She goes, oh, man, I've got an old iPhone SE. I want to go do this. I wonder, that would be fun. And it was like purely the sport. That's all it yes. was about was the sport of it, right? Yeah, because there's so little to be gained by jailbreaking these days because Apple have expanded the capabilities of what third-party apps can do to such an extent that there's that there's very little you can't do. Because we used to need jailbreak to get third-party keyboards. And we used to need to jailbreak to get third-party password managers. And we used to need to jailbreak for cut, copy, paste. Um, there was even a time we had to jailbreak to have any apps whatsoever. I won't be content until they give us a way to have text expander on our phones, though. Do you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an accessibility API that made that possible. Someday? Yeah, it's not impossible. It's just a matter of getting to getting around to writing the API so that there is a permission to ask for. Because right, once there's right. a permission to ask for, then that permission can be granted to text expander and its ilk, and hey, presto, you're away. I mean, that's how you it know, works on the Mac. That's a, that's a good point. Um, because one of the hard parts about doing the videos that we do at Screencast Online is adding the touch targets. When you see them do their their demos on screen, they show mm-hmm. their fingers moving. We yes. can't do that. That doesn't exist. But with iPad OS 13, I think it is possible with them. There's, there's, you got to turn on some accessibility stuff. I, I got to go play with that. But I think that might be the the break we've been waiting for to get rid of an incredibly tedious part of video development for tutorials. Oh, you manually draw them on. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't. Uh-huh. Don actually oh. pays someone to do it. I have just developed a whole new level of respect for those videos. <laughs> Life is too short to be the one doing that. Unless you're tried. It's, it's miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Okay, so. Who? So, right. So there's there's a lot of silver linings here. Uh, obviously, from the jailbreaking community's point of view, this is mana from heaven because Apple can't block this with a future iOS update. So they now have a permanent jailbreak for all of these devices. Mm-hmm. So that's great for people into jailbreaking. It's also great. Actually, no, we'll step aside of that. So who's it dangerous for? 
right? If you are a high-value target who might be subject to state-sponsored surveillance, industrial espionage, or like high-level cybercrime, like, you know, tricking a CEO into paying a few million dollars to someone level cybercrime, or maybe a civil rights campaigner or lawyer or government worker or official or elected representative. This is not without danger for you, because unless you're in the habit of always rebooting your phone every time it's out of your contact, out of your control for a moment, for, you know, a while, then you can't really know that it hasn't been silently jailbroken while you had your back turned. So but they can't get to your data. But if your phone is on, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's not straightforward, but it's there is still, it, it's not zero threat. So I would still be inclined to say, if I was someone of such a high value, I would be sure to be on the latest phone. And the thing is, whether this exploit existed or not, that would still be my advice for high-value people because every new iteration, Apple add more security features. Mm-hmm. So if you're someone of such a high value, you should just always be on the most latest one. So I wonder that advice there's, is I suppose there's also the possibility that they could, um, once jailbroken, exploit OS problems from, I don't know. Well, yeah, you can chain exploits together, right? That is absolutely yeah. a thing. So. While this on its own isn't enough to get the Chinese government what they want, this may be the last step they needed. Maybe they have an exploit chain that's one link short. Mm-hmm. This could be the li- this could be the missing link, right? Not in evolution, but in hackerology. So, if I was someone who it was worth the amount of effort it takes to do these big chained exploits, I would go out and buy myself an iPhone 11 or. Yeah, frankly, the 11 without the Pro would do like any, any, in fact, even a 10 or, which is now the cheap or iPhone. Or 10S. Yeah. No, the 10S. Uh, the 10S isn't for sale anymore, right? The 10 or, the 11 and the 11 Pros are for sale. So the, the 10 or is now a really good value phone and it has a new enough system on a chip that is not vulnerable to this. So that's, you know, if you're a camp, a civil rights campaigner as opposed to a C level executive with money pouring out of the rears. The tenor is a great option, and if you're a C-level executive with money pouring out of your ears, yay, why not go for 11 Pro Max? How about it? <laughs> anyway, and even if this book didn't exist, that would still be the best thing to do. Now, the final wonderful twist here is that for you and I, who are not high-level targets, the most likely outcome of this book's existence is to make us more secure. Hmm. How? Ah. Security researchers, their lives are so much easier now. They basically, they can just now get into the innards of iOS. So they can do way more cool white hat hackery and then responsibly disclose any vulnerabilities they find to Apple. So the most likely outcome is more bugs found more quickly and patched more quickly. Oh, just because these are older phones doesn't mean they're running their older OSs because they're all, a lot of them are fairly modern. Exactly. The iOS 13 is running on devices that are are subject to this jailbreak. Right. So, and they will be for quite some time because those, uh, particularly the generation two Mac, uh, iPad Air, iPad Pros, they they still have a long road to go. So Mm -hmm. this is quite a few years. Also, 
the reason Apple are releasing these special iPhones for security researchers is basically so that security researchers have, you know, unfettered access to iOS. This gives security researchers that access immediately without having to join a waiting list for those fancy pants devices Apple are going to be given to some select security well, maybe this is what they meant, Bart. <laughs> right, yes. So, you know, actually, in a strange way, this might even be conceivably a good news story. But either way, it is absolutely positively not a set your hair on fire story. Good. Good. Okay. All the rest is easy from there on. So, security yeah. updates. Microsoft have rushed out a an out-of-band patch for an Internet Explorer zero day. That is important. Okay. Um, Apple have basically patched everything. And in the case of many things, not just the ones. Hey, Bart, let's check our devices before you list off what the latest OS is. That's a fair point. There's every bloody chance. Two mornings in a row, I woke up to my iPad going, oh, I need your password. I've just updated myself. And I was like, but you did that yesterday. It's like, no, no, I did it again. Oh, my gosh. Bart, I really think they need to change it to 14. The next one needs to be 14 because this is the unluckiest we're, I, I just did iOS 13.1.2, and I have two repeatable bugs. I have but, a very annoying bug in my iPad Pro where when I unlock it, it flips itself upside down. So the lock screen has correctly interpreted the rotation of my device, and once it unlocks, everything is stuck in mirror world. And that's in 13.1.2? Yeah. I've got a really, really fun one. I uh, use slide over to pull up, say, Telegram or messages to pull it mm -hmm. up over to the right while I'm looking at a Safari page. Yeah. And more than once, I've pulled it up there and then I want to slide it. And when I go to slide it, all of a sudden it half animates to where it's in the middle of the screen. And now it's not showing what it actually is. It's just kind of this grayish blue. And when when you try to touch it, it moves out from under your finger. It oh. just scoots around. You can keep tapping the screen and it's moving around like some really oh, annoying geez. video game. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> That's on 13.1.2 that I have put on it today. Joy. <sighs> I was 12, 14. Here we come. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so there was iOS 13, then there was iOS 13.1, which had security stuff, then there was 13.1.1 had security stuff, and now there's 13.1.2, which has security stuff. Uh, most important, there was a permissions problem with third-party keyboards where they were getting more permissions than they were supposed to. That was not good. That's fixed. Yeah, I heard they were getting full access even if you didn't go in and say, yes, you can have full access. Yep. Basically, the checking of the permissions was broken. Nice. Yeah. Um, there are also fixes for the... There's a whole bunch of, of bugs presented at Black Hat, and I think at the time, five out of the six were fixed. Well, six out of six are fixed now. Oh, good. And the other nice thing is Apple didn't only patch iOS 13. They also patched iOS 12, which has now gone to 12.4.2. So if you have an older device that can't come to 13, you were not yet out in the cold. You might be soon, but you just got a security update, which is nice. That is in the good Anya category. Yes, I'm really happy to see this because the trend continues. Modern Apple Watches should be on 6.0.1, but older Apple Watches, not the Series 0, unfortunately, but the Series 1 and the Series 2 should now be on 5.3.2. So again, security update for older devices. Yeah, that's, and, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and the Mac, very similar story. So 10.14.6 is current. But there was Supplemental Update 2, 
for Mojave, Sierra, Mojave, Sierra. Wait, I'm, oh, I'm second guessing myself. I'm so glad that OS is, is gone. Uh, Mojave thing, Sierra and High Sierra. So that's, that's going back. You know, that's three OSs there. That's pretty decent. And then not related to Apple in any way, shape, size, or form, there is a very important update for Android WhatsApp users. There was a really nasty bug in the Android version of WhatsApp and only the Android version of WhatsApp. It has been patched. Make sure you're up to date. So um, I'm still running my software update check right now on my Mac, but I'm pretty certain that there is an update to um, Mojave beyond... Oh, no, you're right. Uh Sorry, you said it. A supplemental update too. Yeah, not 10.14.6 alone. Yes, exactly. Those two things. I don't know. That's an odd naming convention, this supplemental update. I've heard of supplemental updates, but I've never seen a supplemental update too. There we go. So, notable news. Security researchers have uncovered a flaw in PDF's encryption spec. Uh, they have named this flaw PDFX, because why not? Bottom line, very simple here. PDF encryption is broken. So if you want to protect a PDF, encrypt it yourself. Do not depend on PDF's built-in encryption features. They're not reliable. Bad spec means not well encrypted. Oh, wow. Facebook, yeah, they basically they didn't learn. They didn't go to crypto school. And they just wrote. How would you encrypt a PDF with PDF's own encryption spec? That feature where you can set a password on a PDF is supposed to encrypt it with AES. In in what app? Uh, the, okay, the PDF spec provides for encryption. Apps that choose to implement the full PDF spec should have a menu option somewhere. Oh, okay. And that's to, using the... Oh, oh, that's not good. No, but... Because that means simple, people won't know that they're not encrypting. Correctly. Well, they are encrypting. It's just they're not encrypting securely. They're encrypting in such a way that it can be unencrypted. <laughs> That's like saying I'm painting the house green with blue paint. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so if you want to actually securely store and transmit PDFs, you need to add your own encryption, be that through... You know, stick them in an encrypted disk image, stick them in an encrypted zip file, encrypt them with PGP or GPG, stick them on an encrypted thumb drive. Basically, provide your own as if it was, you know, an image file. Something like Kekka to compress it and put a uh, password on that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, like zip file support encryption, RAR file support encryption, DMG file support encryption. Mm -hmm. Whatever you like. Basically, you got to do it yourself. <laughs> Facebook have deleted tens of thousands of apps for data abuse as part of their investigations into Cambridge Analytica. In other words, who else was doing this? Oh, look, everyone. Oh, um, really? Tens yeah, of thousands. Tens of thousands. Um, I loved John Gruber's headline. Um, what was it? He said, yet another far larger than I had previously acknowledged Facebook fiasco. Yeah, I love John. He gets it so on the head sometimes. He doesn't always use Girl Scout safe language for what he thinks of Facebook. He does not. I generally agree with his opinions, but you're correct. I don't I don't always get the opportunity to link to him. I could in this case. <laughs> the wow. UK, the US and Australia have gotten together to write a letter to Facebook asking them to stop end to end encryption. Or give him <sighs> a backdoor. I know. Bad. Um 
better news now. So I generally speak and get the worst stuff out of the way first and then we switch gears. Um, TikTok have decided to take a very different approach to Facebook when it comes to dealing with political ads. They've decided to have none of them in the US or the EU. Basically, they felt that they were trying to encourage, what was it? It said something like, a positive and friendly atmosphere and political ads were just not compatible with that. And I'm thinking, God, yeah. That's interesting. So very simple solution. that That's not just ads for specific politicians. It also includes issue ads. So just basically no political oh. advertising on TikTok. So that's an interesting approach because they can't possibly be liable for it if they just don't allow it at all. Yeah. How do you, how, you know... You just don't have to worry about whether or not it's a you know it's appropriate if it's being paid for by the right people if it's Russians paying for political ads just don't have any yeah. <laughs> yeah then you can't have these problems. The European Court of Justice were extremely busy and they released two rulings which on the surface could confuse the bejeebus out of you because they sound contradictory but they're not but you do have to read the fine print. So let's start with we just do them in chronological order. So, in a case brought by Google, the European Court of Justice has ruled that the so-called right to be forgotten does not extend outside of the European Union. So, the court ruled that Google must make efforts to hide the affected search results from EU visitors regardless of the Google TLD they go to. So, simply going to google.com instead of google.fr is not good enough. You actually have to use uh, geolocation stuff to stop Europeans, regardless of the TLD they go to. But... Wait, 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 wait. So, they're going to check your IP address? Yes. So, you're coming in through a, a VPN, you've made active measures, so... Well, okay, then you have decided to be foreign, so then you're treated as foreign. Fine. Okay. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, so they're not saying that Google is liable if a European ever sees it, but they're basically saying that Google has to put reasonable measures in place. Okay. Because uh, the initial, the, Google's first attempt at this was to only block European results on European TLDs, and they, the court were like, no, Google, you're not getting off quite that easily. And then a French court tried to say, actually, you must block these results everywhere on planet Earth. And Google went, ah, now, hang on a second. And so that's why Google took the case from from the French court up to the European court. And the European court went, you know something, Google, you got a point. But just be reasonable and we're all good here. So frankly, I think we'd all said that the right to be forgotten would be clarified through further court judgments. Hey, presto, clarification. And frankly, sensible, sane clarification. This is good outcome. And I would have been really happy if this is where the news had stopped. (laughs) <laughs> Fortunately, two or three days later, the ECJ were in my newsreader again, and this time they had a different opinion, but it's on a subtly but importantly different manner. So, this time it involves a court case against Facebook by an Austrian politician. And it's not about right to be forgotten, it's about defamatory content. In other words, content that has been found to be in breach of the law. So, this is not right to be forgotten this is illegal content which is different and what the court ruled is that if a european court tells facebook to delete illegal content they must delete it not simply hide it from europeans 
Oh, no matter where it is. No matter no matter where it is, if a European mm. court says this is illegal, then you must delete it, and mm. you must delete copies of it. So if it's a post that then gets duplicated five million times, you need to delete the duplicates too because the content has been ruled illegal. Mm. This is a bit of a power grab, and this is exactly the kind of thing that is going to cause no end of trouble for transnational companies because. Mm. Oh, American law and European law are not in sync on all matters. Mm -hmm. So it is only a matter of time until you end up with something which a European court says you must delete and which a court in another country, perhaps America, says you may not delete for freedom of speech reasons or something like that. It is just a matter of time until Facebook are left between a rock and a hard place here. And we're going to need some sort of international treaty to figure out how transnational companies should be governed. And it's not just Facebook. Right, it's any company that's transnational. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is kind of a problem because either no one has jurisdiction or everyone has jurisdiction at the moment. We can't have no one. So I guess everyone is the least bad of those two options, but that's not really workable. So there's going to have to be some sort of international treaty. Like we have the concept of international maritime law. We're going to need to have something, some basis for how we deal with these companies that are not of a nation, but are of every nation. Hmm. Fun times. I guess the lawyers will do well. Yeah, that's right. This is is lawyer heaven, right? We can litigate this sucker forever. Pretty much. Google provided the world with a wonderful illustration of why Apple's System Integrity Protection, or SIP, is a really good idea, and why disabling it is not. Hmm. Google? Google intentionally or unintentionally? Oh no, this is unintentional. This is SIP protecting from a whoopsie, which is kind of what it's for. Okay. So when you install a whole bunch of Google apps, you get a Google updater. Whether you mm-hmm. like it or not, you get this always running background Google updater, which is why your Chrome is always up to date. This updater developed a wee bug that caused it to delete a symlink, which basically holds Mac OS together. Oh, no. Now, if you had SIP, the delete was blocked. If you did not have SIP, the delete went ahead and everything seemed hunky-dory fine until you rebooted your Mac. And all of a sudden, you had an unbootable OS and you had to reinstall. Oh my gosh. How many people did this hit? It seems that very few people disable SIP. Well, that's a good thing. For some reason, it seemed to hit the movie industry. So there must be some software that's in common use in Hollywood that's not compatible with SIP. Because it was Mac Pros in Hollywood that got slammed by this. Huh. And initially everyone blamed the Mac Pro. And mm-hmm. then they started blaming I think it was Adobe or one of or Avid or one of those big video companies. Mm-hmm. And then eventually someone put two and two together and realized it was Google, but it wasn't affecting most people because SIP was fix it was basically stopping the problem as it should. Wow. For some reason Hollywood was full of people running Macs without SIP. Huh. And bad things happened. Wow. So, this is a good news, bad news story. 
So DEF CON is a fantastic security conference, and they like to shed light on all sorts of security issues. And one of their areas of interest the last couple of years has been voting, because they think voting is important, and I agree with them. So they run something called the Voting Village, which is basically a hackerspace where DEF CON provide actual, you know, Vote, machines identical to the actual voting machines used in actual US elections for security researchers to hammer at. Sort of like pwn to own, but for voting. And you don't get to own. Um, <laughs> as in you don't get to keep the machine, right? The, the whole gimmick with pwn to own was if you hacked the Mac, you got to keep the Mac. That was sort of its right. original gimmick. The bad news then. So the good news is that DEF CON do this. And in the long run, this is going to lead to more secure elections. In the short term, it was a train wreck. The voting machines they're so bad. are horrendous. Piece of cake to hack into them. Ridiculously easy to hack into them. No specialist knowledge. Oh, the, 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 the quotes in the Naked Security article do not make for pleasant reading. Mm. The other bit of related good news, I guess, is that Microsoft are working really hard on a completely open source voting machine. Right, right. I think you mentioned that before. I did. And that's gotten to the stage where they have working prototypes that people are playing with. So I am hoping that this kind of event by DEF CON makes it clear to local local governments, because in America, for very sensible reasons, actually, there is not a single national electoral system. There is something like 280 smaller organizations that run voting across America. So it's kind of impossible to hack the entire American election, which is good. (laughs) But at the moment, there doesn't quite seem to be enough standard knowledge across them all to help them not have crappy voting machines. So I'm hoping that between DEF CON's shining a bright spotlight and Microsoft waving their arms going, solution, 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 that someone puts two and two together or that 200 and whatever amount of people put two and two together and things move forward. That's my hope. So. What do other countries use? Uh, an awful lot of other countries do not do e-voting. Ireland briefly flirted do with not e-voting. Do not do what? Electronic voting. They just, oh. they, they count with human I don't beings. think these are necessarily electronic votes. I've never used an electronic voting machine. I go in with a little thing that I poke holes into a piece of cardboard. Well, still... Actually, no, no, maybe like, maybe they're little, little bubble things now, are they? Yeah, okay, so yeah, voting technology runs a whole gamut from it's a touchscreen you t- you touch on and to it's a piece of paper you stab and then that piece of paper is run through a, a machine to count them. There's, there's a whole gamut of different things here. Um, I, I guess they were checking them all. Uh, the Microsoft system is cryptographically secured and has a paper trail to fall back on. Should all yeah, the, the paper trail turns out to be really important. Frankly, yes. Which and so seems counterintuitive, right? Yeah, but what you need is the absolute assurance that if if anyone is in doubt, then we count it the old way. Mm-hmm. Because you need to have trust in elections, otherwise they're pointless. So Ireland briefly spent an, a whole bunch of money on e-voting machines, and the citizenry were like, uh, we don't trust this. And then some security researchers audited them and went, oh, jeebus, this is why no one should trust these. And Mm. they were thrown in the bin. And we are back to paper, and we are much happier for it. Do you stab it? 
No, we write because we have a uh, we have p- proportional representation, so we rank candidates in order. Oh, so okay. we write one for our first preference, two for our second preference, and we keep writing numbers until we run out of numbers or we stop giving a bleep. <laughs> Whichever comes first. Okay. Uh, you hope there aren't seven where ones and sevens are hard to tell apart, that kind of thing, right? Uh, well, yeah, but they ask you to write your seven with the line through it, so that's okay. Oh, okay. Uh, and most people, frankly, get about as far as four, and then they give up. Right. Uh, but it does. It, it actually means that there's no such thing as a spoiler vote, because you, you can vote for the third-party candidate without ruining your vote, because you then give your second preference vote to someone you think has a chance of winning. And strangely enough, because everyone knows that they're not wasting their vote, the third-party candidates do well. Because ah. you don't have the spoiler effect. Yeah, interesting. But anyway, that's a whole... Oh, I could talk forever on the, the internet <laughs> of voting systems. It's a whole other show. That's one for myself. I keep trying to convince Patrick Beja to let me do that with him. I will oh. succeed. Do you hear that, Patrick? I want to talk to you about elections. <laughs> uh, more good news. The Open ID Foundation have confirmed that sign-in with Apple is compatible with the Open ID standard. Oh... I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. It is a standard for the sign-in with dot, dot, dot. So sign-in with Google, sign-in with Facebook, sign-in with Twitter. They One of the standards they all follow is OpenID Connect. And OpenID Connect is run by the OpenID Foundation. And Are they sure? The, that doesn't sound like Apple. Uh, I mean, no, no, <laughs> Apple, to be honest, Apple, Apple actually, either they do something completely private or they follow standards. I don't know. There's like the Apple Watch is not a Qi charger. It's some other weird sort of not Qi and things like that. Right. But then on the other example, you have micro, you have a mini display port, which Apple invented and gave to the world and is a standard. So they're very schizophrenic on standards. Okay. Um. Anyway, I, over the summer, I didn't put it into the main show notes. I had it down in Propeller Beanie because it really wasn't a news story at the time. During the beta of sign-in with Apple, OpenID Foundation sent an open letter to Apple pointing out some security whoopsies in their first attempt and a whole bunch of compatibility problems in their implementation. And Apple basically addressed all the security concerns and all the compatibility concerns. Mm. There's also a bit of a philosophical disagreement between OpenID and Apple because OpenID think Apple should make more information available to the identity providers and Apple think they shouldn't. So they still disagree on that. Wait, who's an identity provider? Uh, So the identity provider for sign-in with Apple is Apple. The identity provider for sign-in with Google is Google. The identity provider for sign-in with Facebook is Facebook. That makes sense? You're saying no, because you said uh, the OpenID people are telling that Sign in with Apple should make more data available to sign in to Apple. Sorry, I have it backwards to the site that is being signed in to. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So if you, yeah, so it's for the identity. Oh, I can't remember the term in the spec now. It's getting too late. Yeah. So you have you, the person being identified, you have the site who wants to identify you and you have the provider of your identity. It's what gets advertised to the site who wants to identify you that OpenID okay. would like Apple to provide more. Hmm. Uh, I don't think Apple will. <laughs> I, I think this will remain a quibble between them. But the point is they are compliant with the spec and the security concerns have been addressed. And that's that's big. Yeah. So, 
really happy to see that. And all done in the beta process, which is how betas are supposed to work. So by the time they went live, it was all fixed. As it should be. Wait, sign in with Apple is live? I believe it came with 13.2. I just don't think it's in heavy use yet. It's not compulsory. It's it, it's not. I think right. you have until March to that you have to use it to get your app approved. But it is up and running. It's just not, I think. My understanding yeah. is it came with 13.2. I seen it on one app once. Okay. Then I deleted the app because it turns out I the app I just forgot crap. all about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, DuckDuckGo have conducted a survey of US adults. And this is not a survey of DuckDuckGo users. This is a survey of US adults. They were very clear on that fact. And what they were interested in was how seriously people are taking all privacy concerns, as in, are they doing anything about it, as opposed to just mm-hmm. kvetching about it? Mm-hmm. And the good news is that they have found that almost four out of five U.S. adults have taken some kind of proactive action to boost their privacy protection on social media. So mm. that ranges from deleting accounts to tweaking settings to reducing usage, sort of in terms wow. of dramaticness. But four out of five have done something, not just talked about it or whined about it, actually done something. Almost a quarter have deleted one or more social media profiles due to privacy. Wow. That made me really happy because I'm always afraid that we're just shouting into an echo chamber and no one, you know, everyone is like, oh, that's terrible. And then just doing nothing. People actually are doing something, which means that there's a chance that the companies will take note because they, there's no way Facebook don't know this is going on. Because they spy on everything. They know everything. So, of course, they know people are reacting, which is good. That's, that's, that makes me happy. Huh. Suggested reading, then. Um, PSA's tips and advice. A nice article from Naked Security. Buying a new laptop. Here's how to secure it. A, a nice one to sort of stick in your pocket and produce whenever friends or family need some guidance on a new purchase. And nothing earth-shattering. Nothing any of our listeners wouldn't already know. But, again, just a nice list for regular folks. Notable breaches and privacy violations is a whole sea of bad news. If any of these names are familiar to you, links in show notes. DoorDash reveals 4.9 million accounts affected by server breach. Words with friends data breach affects 218 million people. And Vimeo store sued for storing face prints of people without their consent. Yay. <laughs> In terms of news under suggested reading, uh, just two stories with a star. Uh, Twitter are rolling out a new DM abuse filter for everyone. So this is a way of us controlling our DMs a bit. If you're being harassed by a DM, that sounds like a good thing. Uh, and then Google are bringing incognito mode to Google Maps. That is... Oh. Yeah, it's a good thing. So thank you, Google. Hmm. Uh a whole bunch more stories. They generally speaking go downhill in terms of positivity. Um, I may, I, I was tempted to put a star on the story where basically Facebook have decided that politicians aren't going to get fact checked because <laughs> that they're newsworthy. But then I decided that would make me cranky and angry, so I left it. And that's it's the in, one where John Gruber used non-girl safe words to describe. Yes, you sent me the John Gruber link. The show notes contain the BBC link, which is much more you know Queen's English. It's okay, much more good. girl scout safe. Um, opinion and analysis then two very interesting opinion pieces worth highlighting 
Uh, you may have noticed with all of the upgrades to Apple devices recently, I don't know if you did this, when you got your new iPhone, did you bring it near your iPad and then use your iPad to teach your iPhone your wireless password? I, I believe we use that feature all the time. Uh, so I don't even notice that anymore. Is that if somebody comes in my house and wants to get on Wi-Fi, it pops up on our phones and says, hey, do you want to you share that with them? So I don't, okay, I don't that's subtly remember. different here. So if you're setting up a device, if there's, a, if there's an iPhone in, you know, that mode where it's saying, hi, what language do you speak? If yeah. you bring your iPad near, it will say, set up your iPhone from your iPad. Right. That's different than just the password, though. Exactly. It? Well, it's more. It, it's the passwords to your Wi-Fi and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, that feature, there's a point in the process where you end up on the iPhone having to enter the password for the device that it's getting its information from, which is a bit weird. And that got the guys in tidbits to ask, huh, why is that? And the answer is because it's really secure and it's a sign that Apple are doing everything right. But if you want to understand... The article and tidbits lays it out really clearly, really simply. So, very interesting read. Okay. And cool. to anyone, sorry, did I step on you there? No, I stepped. I stepped on you. <laughs> We're having quite a little bit of those. Keep going. Yeah, de- de- delays are evil. Uh, the other that important one in opinion and analysis. Um, there are many, many, many reasons why a no deal Brexit would be troublesome. One that people are not really thinking about is that if the UK fall out of the EU, then data sharing between the UK and the EU will cease because they will not be covered by the GDPR. Mm. And that will be catastrophic to UK companies that have European customers. Wait, why would that be catastrophic to them? Because they wouldn't, because European you couldn't share information between European companies and British companies anymore. Uh, um, yeah. Safe Harbor would go away. It, it would be trouble. I mean, troublesome. It, would, it would be troublesome. Well, okay. I have so many questions, but we're, we're running long, so I should <laughs> let it go. Oh, look, Brexit is just a train wreck. It is just, yeah. the, even on the nerdy stuff, it would be a train wreck because Europe is really big on data protection. If you fall out of Europe, that has data protection implications, and data is kind of important today. That's basically that's what that story boils down to. It would ruin your life in terms of data. Uh, Propeller Beanie, then. Um, if you're a WordPress person and you're running a plugin called Rich Reviews, delete it yesterday. The plugin is not under active development, contains a really nasty security bug, and is being used in the wild to hack WordPress sites. Ooh. I don't yeah. think I, either of us do have this plugin installed, but like I say, rich reviews, big problems, make it go away. Uh, in case you're uh, wondering uh, whether your message on plugins and how to pick good ones is getting through, uh, I helped uh, Sandy Foster set up a, a new WordPress blog, or WordPress website for, and we came to a point where we needed some plugins, and she was sitting there looking to see does it have a lot of stars? Has it been updated in the last six months? If you know, looking for the the things you always tell us to look for. Yay. So uh, yeah, excellent, good, good. Uh, worth mentioning, uh, details in show notes for those who care about the under the hood, but basically Cloudflare, Chrome and Firefox have gotten together to launch 
a new spec, HTTP version 3. Faster, more efficient HTTP. Thank you. Ooh. And again, it, you know, that's that's a good crowd of people to be working on this kind of thing. I may not always agree with Google's motives and things, but you know something? They got some damn smart engineers. So do Firefox and so do Cloudflare. So they are the right people to make HTTP 3. And and HTTP 3 includes HTTPS? It is. HTTP 2 and 3 are both always secure, actually. Okay. It's just like, why would we bother with an insecure variant? Right, right. Okay, good. Now I didn't think I, they forgot, but I just wanted no, to be clear. No, no, no. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, HTTP two sort of basically went to the model of let's just encrypt everything always, and HTTP three is just let's do everything HTTP two did only do it faster. Uh, it's it's quite clever. It's, it's over UD. Uh, yeah, it's in propeller beanie for a reason. It's over UDP and all sorts of weirdo things, but it's cool. Uh, I don't have a traditional palate cleanser. What I do have is three podcast recommendations that are fascinating and interesting, but not necessarily cheery. And don't forget, after this, I do have a a palate cleanser. You do, I know, which is why I'm going first, so that you can genuinely cleanse. (laughs) So the first one, Darknet Diaries has me completely sucked in at this stage. Um, But this week's episode particularly hit home because it reminded me of something I should have known. We we all, when I say governments, you know, hacking into companies to spy on people, I think Snowden, I think CIA, I think PRISM. But, you know, Snowden documents revealed something else. It wasn't just the Americans who were up to this kind of stuff. GCHQ in the UK were up to the same. Specifically, they were hacking the Belgian ISP Belgacom. Now Proximus, they had a rebranding. Why were they hacking Belgacom? Belgacom are the ISP for the EU, as in the European government. So while the CIA were busy spying on Angela Merkel, GCHQ were busy spying on all the European diplomats. (laughs) A fascinating story about how it was discovered. Basically, the Belgacom engineers were like, why is our mail server acting funny? And they pulled on a thread and they ended up with one hell of a a ball of yarn. Oh, oh my no. God, they end up with a ball of yarn. And the whole story is told. It is fascinating. And depressing? Well, yes and no. It, I wouldn't say depressing, just like illuminating. Because hmm. we kind of know this stuff's going on. So, you know, I, I, didn't, I, was, I was just as depressed when I started as when I finished. I'm now just <laughs> way more educated. That's as optimistic as you can go with this. <laughs> kind of is, but really... Very, very good episode. Uh, I also want to mention a mini-series that has just wrapped up, so it's now ready for binge-watching. It's a 10-part mini-series called Sleepwalkers. And this is a two-sides frank look at AI. So this is not a doom and gloom, scare the pants off you look at AI, because they're very, very keen to point out both the dangers and the immense opportunities presented by AI. What the series is trying to get across to people is that we need to think about this because AI is happening, whether we like it or not. And so we can either work together to, you know, promote the good and fight the bad, or we can just let it all unfold and hope for the best. And we probably shouldn't go that route. (laughs) So I say fascinating and very, very well produced. 
And then the final one I have is a little more straightforward to describe. It is an interview with Microsoft President Brad Smith. And the um, tagline for the interview, the sort of the, the what is this about line for the for the episode is quite simply, how do we ensure our astonishing technological advantages are harnessed for good, not harm? That is the point of this interview. It's about 20 minute interview um, with uh, Brad Smith. Brad Smith. I heard him on another podcast that you recommended. It might have been Carl, was he on Re- Recode recently. He was indeed on Rico Decode Ricara, and again, yeah. he he's a very good interview. And what really comes across is how different Microsoft in 2019 are to the smug and smarmy Bill Gates depositions from the antitrust hearings in was that late 90s? Yeah, like the contrast is huge. Yeah, he was he's an interesting guy. He's and he's he's very um, comfortable. You yeah. know, he was just comfortable to listen to. It, it was it didn't it didn't seem measured or practiced when he answered. It was just like, no, I know this stuff. And he was prepared to to say, you know, to admit that Microsoft made mistakes. Like he yeah. was very comfortable saying we got that wrong. Yeah, he almost sounded like somebody from the outside looking in. It was so, but he's been there forever. It he's been there a, forever, but he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I thought I remembered. Yeah, so he's a lawyer who made it through Apple's legal department. Is now uh, not Apple's Microsoft. He's now Microsoft president, which is not many people go in through the legal department and end up as president. Right, and I think company interesting that sort of ability for a lawyer to see both sides of an argument. I think that's serving him very well. Yeah, I think think that's that's what's going on there. But yeah, like you say, he's a really good interview, and this is you know Kara's one is an hour. This is a twenty minute one, so you know, nice listen. So after you've done all that hard work. Let Alice, Alison cleanse your palate. <laughs> so this is just the stupidest, silliest little thing. And I actually did it at the end of Programming by Stealth, too. So if you listen to both, you're going to hear this twice. Um, someone tweeted a video of a cat on the Internet. I know that's weird, right? I mean, that never happens. But it's, it's this person's cat. And the, the, ca- the caption says, this is his sixth attempt to jump on the counter. And it's this big fat cat who has no possible chance of making it to the top of this counter. And he jumps, and I'm using the word jump really uh, broadly here. To I, I, he he goes what maybe a quarter of an inch off the ground because he's so fat. But the, what the what's amazing about this video is he really looks like this time I'm going to make it. You know, I'm sure of it. And he well, is the full no, wiggle, right? We get the whole, yeah. you know that cat thing they do to size up a jump where we get the full little wiggle and he's like, <laughs> yeah, he's good to go. And he gets like halfway up. Now, the reason I, I think it's so funny is it just reminds me of me when I'm doing my programming by stealth homework. Because some lately I've been able to do a lot of the homework on my own. But there are weeks where I just call up Dorothy and go, I have no idea where to start. I don't even know. But I get to this phase where I think I can. And that's the funny part is I'm like, oh, yeah, I got my little cat wiggle going. Here I go. I'm going to. What? I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> anyway, well, this was uh, this was good. A lot of, lot of stuff, a lot of meat, chewier than I thought it would be. Well, good. Uh, and yeah, you know, not too bad. We're... we're Many fire extinguishers. We're not too depressed, I hope. Nope. Okay, well, until next time, you all know what to do. Stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. 
You can do that by emailing me at allison at com. Did you know somebody who comes to the live show all the time asked me recently, hey, I have a dumb question. How do I, how do I send it to you? Yeah. <laughs> Every single week, send it to allison at com. Anyway, I'm not going to give a full shout out to Frank, but uh, anyway, do, uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. Want to become a patron of the Podfeed podcast? Podfeed.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeed.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack community? Podfeed.com slash Slack. And don't forget, next week, if you do have anything you could send in, a recording, that would be really great to uh, beef up the show a little bit. I'll get some stuff done, certainly, but if you've got some content, this is a good week to send it in. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. But don't be late like Ian was this week because he has to bring drinks next time. When you do come in, you can join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed. Mm-hmm.